Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Mark chapter 16. Today is our last day of the book of Mark. It's been a quick journey as it's the shortest of all the Gospels. Uh, last week we left Jesus in a grave. He was buried in a rich man's tomb and he was witnessed by Mary and the other Mary um, that they knew where the location of the tomb was. S Sabbath happens. The first few words of chapter 16 is now when Sabbath was passed. The reason that's important is because Sabbath was a holy feast to the Jews. They couldn't deal with dead people. They couldn't deal with graves. Sabbath had to be set apart. So they had to wait for Sabbath to be over. Um, and they had to wait for first light to do anything with the body or to deal with it. Because it was kind of late on Friday night when, when he was put in the grave. And it was kind of a hasty thing. So there's, there's ritual to burying a body and, and a tradition to it. So he'd be laid on a sepulcher, which would be a big stone slab. And he'd be laid there wrapped up in linens and he would just have to wait for two days. Now, if you've dealt with dead bodies before, two days is forever in dead body language. And you would come in first with anointments and oils so that you could handle the smell. And so it's a dirty job. It's, not, it's, it's definitely not something that people prefer to do. You do it out of love and respect for that body that used to carry the person that you loved. And so Mary and Mary are kind of doing that here. Um, and I should, we should note, I think the Passover, the, when Sabbath is fat, passed, this Passover Sabbath is important because that's the day that death would have gone through the land of Egypt and killed all the firstborn sons. And so as God's one and only beloved son is killed and laid in a grave and, and, and is dead for that period, he's actually even, I think symbolically, he's, he's been killed for the sins of the world just like the Egyptians' firstborn sons were killed for the sins of Egypt. And so Jesus fills that kind of role. And you got Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome now bringing spices. So we've added a third woman now. And they're coming to honor his body, that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said amongst themselves, Who's gonna ro who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Now these earth, these rich tombs were cut into the side of the hill and there was a huge stone, human like standing size stone that would be rolled down a subtle grade and it would hit over a bump. So the momentum would carry it and lop it over that bump and it would sometimes take up to 10 soldiers to move one of these stones, 10 grown men. So it's a lot of weight, a lot of poundage, and these three women are kind of walking there with no plan for how to get to Jesus, right? Like, who's going to help us with this? There would have been a Roman guard at the tomb because that we see that in other Gospels. Um, and then the question is, when that tomb has been sealed and guarded by a Roman guard, like, they're kind of going there in faith because those soldiers aren't going to open that tomb or they would be guarding anyone from doing it. So... Mary Magdalene gets prominence in this part of it uh, for good reason. While all 11 of the disciples have left, none of them are here to care for the body, which should be something they do for their teacher. So they're still scattered. They're still gone. Um, 
but you see Mary Magdalene stepping up and being devout and honoring Jesus even before the resurrection. That puts her in a pretty significant place of honor. And the way that she did this and the bringing of the spices, she loved Jesus for who Jesus was as a human in addition to being the one that saved her from seven demons. So there's a gratefulness from Mary that even if, he, even if she's doubting that he'll raise from the dead again and bringing the spices for death would indicate that, there is an absolute faith here. And she's brought two people to come with her to, to honor that body too. So they expect Jesus to be dead. He has been dead for three Jewish days, the evening and all day Sabbath, and then the evening again. We're now on the very beginning of the third day. Mark skips the whole deal with the Roman guard and, and moves forward, and they show this allegiance here that they have. Verse 4, when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. Like notably or remarkably, this huge stone was gone. It's been moved. Um, <laughs> the question of who is going to move the stone quickly changes to how did the stone get moved? What happened? Who moved it? Where are the soldiers? What's going on? But they walk up and they just see an open tomb. Um, I think this is interesting because the followers of Jesus didn't do anything to move the stone. Neither did his enemies. God didn't need us to do this. He didn't need one human being to do what he's going to do. He solely did this on his own, including removing the stone. And it's not necessary to move the stone because we're going to see in later on in his resurrected body or his changed body, his, his heavenly form, he seems to get in and out of closed rooms without a problem. So the fact that the stone is moved is simply for the Mary and the other Mary and Salome to see that the stone was moved. So the moving of the stone was for our benefit. Um, so Jesus, when in, in, this, uh, in this instance, isn't there. This is interesting too. Why wouldn't Jesus be sitting there waiting for them? That's because we're not to see Jesus in a grave at this point. That's not the image he wants in their head. So the empty grave becomes the first and probably the most significant evidence of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrected Jesus was not doubted by any one of the contemporaries. It took hundreds of years for skeptics to think he didn't rise from the dead. The initial plan was to create a story that Jesus was somehow in, like, carried away by his disciples. But we can see from Mark's account, the disciples weren't anywhere near. So they had to make this up, just like they made up the accusations against Jesus. But the idea that he rose was pretty irrefutable. It had a Roman guard there, and he got out anyways. So in entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed with a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? We were hoping this would land on Easter, but it didn't quite work out that way. So we're getting ready for Easter right now. Matthew shares this was actually an angel. Mark, not having been there, doesn't go to that extent. He doesn't say it was an angel. He just says it was a young man in a long white robe might be our hint that it's an angel, right? Wearing a long white robe would be an odd thing to see even in the... the in this part of part of history, that would have been hard to get. The white had to come with a lot of bleaching. White was really expensive. It would be like a beige or tan robe if it was an average person. But there was something about this robe that was worth mentioning. The word young man there in the Greek means attendant or someone who is a servant of or a house servant or butler. 
The long white robe would be the color of righteousness. So this is an attendant attending to the needs of this, these women, really. The only reason he's there is to tell them to move on. The word amazed there, they were alarmed, um, is, the, is an ekthambeo, which is an interesting word. It is to either the reaction of terror or the reaction of amazement. But the idea behind the word in the Greek is that there's a shock or a physical reaction to something that happens. Like when someone scares you and you jump back. That's the alarmed we're talking about. So the fact that they're walking up to the open tomb, first of all, I don't like walking into tombs myself. Like that's a creepy moment when you're going up towards a tomb and a grave and there's somebody living inside. Their reaction is just like one of, of instant physical shock that hits them. Amazement to the point of soreness or a physical reaction. Like, oh, you almost gave me a heart attack. So he jumps back. They jump back as they do this. And he says, don't be jump. Don't, don't, no need for theatrics. Don't jump back. Don't be alarmed. This is expected. It was planned. The entire gospel of Mark. Mark focuses so little on the death and resurrection of Jesus. He focuses so much on what Jesus said and how it all came true. And I think when Peter preached, it was the same kind of thing. He tells about the death and resurrection because that's a key part of the good news. But to mark the good news is everything else that he said and did. He healed people. He cast out demons. He did all of these things over and over and over again. And he told his disciples about it and empowered them to do the same. And so this resurrection thing, it kind of fits that theme. Don't be alarmed. Don't be shocked at what's happened here. Jesus said he was going to do this. And his word alone should be enough for them to, to know it. You seek Jesus. The Romans said it first at the cross. This must be the king. And then you had the kind of the two people that, or we'll get to the, the two people here too, but we have the most unlikely people recognizing Jesus is there. But that idea that the Romans said at the cross, Joseph of Arimathea honored him with the, uh, this grave. Now these women are here. They're all people that seek Jesus. And that hasn't changed today. We seek Jesus. There's nothing different. And when you come to seek Jesus and what you find is an empty grave, that should stir your heart in that there's something about Jesus that means we beat death. It says, Jesus of Nazareth. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. I like that his very short story here is he uses the earthly, non-impressive title for Jesus. You seek Jesus from that small town of Nazareth who just got killed on a cross that guy. But it's not king of glory. It's not prince of peace. It's Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Small town guy makes it dead. Like that's his story outside of resurrection. You seek that guy. You seek the guy that just got killed. That description then becomes one of shame in the flesh, but in the spiritual life, that lowly, humble name becomes one of glory. And it all flips on a dime because God actually used Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. So here it's spoken like a badge of honor. I think God holds precious the things that the world despises. We hate when someone, just a good person, is just fail. He's risen. He's not here. That guy you think you're looking for, he's not here anymore. God's done something new. And I just love the language in Mark because I, I have a feeling this is what Peter would kind of follow up with in his preaching is if you seek Jesus, what you're going to find when you find that empty grave is that you're not the same anymore. That person, that old you that used to be here, you know, Sean of Medelia, he's not here anymore. He's gone. 
And what you're looking for, the, the God that you're looking for has something else in mind for you and for these women and for anyone that seeks him. And the, the idea here is he is risen. It doesn't say he's awoke. It says he's arisen, life from death. He is, the curse is broken, the deed's done. We can see the place where he's laid, and that's the first piece of evidence. Look, see the place where God laid him. And I think this is just that idea of when we try to help people find Jesus, first of all, they should be seeking, right? It's hard to just force feed this to people. But if they're looking for something different and they're looking for Jesus, the first thing we can say, say is see the tomb is empty. He's not there. Use your eyes. Accept the obvious fact of what's going on in your life, what's going on in your heart, and understand that that's the case. Here's the thing. You can look at every other world religion and the person that came up with it that met in a secret room or had some golden tablets or found some wisdom on a mountain, they're all dead and they're buried and they're in graves. So if your goal in seeking life is life, why not look at the person who's, who actually beat death and came out of that? God leaves evidence behind. And this empty grave that he, these women are told to look at, for 2,000 years, we're all told to look at that empty grave. That's the proof. You don't have to take the angel's word for it. These women were told to look and see. So the faith they leave this grave with is not a faith that they generated. It's one that God showed to them so they could move forward and simply believe what Jesus said. His words are true because the grave is empty. So Mark simply moves right to action. And this has been the whole book of Mark. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you, verse 7. But go, right? Just look at the grave, but don't look at it too long. Like, let's not dwell on the dead part of this story. Let's dwell on the life part of this story. But go and tell his disciples. Again, this image or idea of the Christian faith just keeps going here. Like, that's our job too. We're supposed to go and go and tell his followers what we've seen. I've seen Jesus move in my life. She's going, her first thing is to go right back to the church, this small little seed of a church that's out there. So they get going. After being stunned by the news, amazed, physically shocked by what they saw, this invitation to go back to the disciples, it's grace. It's all God. They didn't do anything. They didn't figure it out. They didn't come up with the scheme. And I love that they, well, and this is, again, Peter that's telling the story, and Mark writing it down, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Why is Peter singled out here? Why has he pulled Peter's name out of a hat? Mark adds this particular inclusion, and it's likely because Peter was so ashamed of what happened when he denied his Christ, he wasn't even hanging with the disciples anymore. Some sins are so egregious to our heart, so destructive to us, we're ashamed to even hang out with other believers. And we split ourselves off from other believers. And that's a place where Christians go to die. You don't kindle a fire when you pull a stick out of it and set it in the grass next door. What happens is it smolders and it goes out. And at this point, go tell the disciples and Peter would strongly indicate Peter's not hanging out with the disciples right now. He's supposed to be the rock of this church. He's supposed to be leading, but he's not doing any of that. And the angel knows it. The angel knows that he's not with the group. So when you get people that aren't hanging out with the disciples, that ashamed, broken place is one that Satan loves for people to be versus being broken with the other disciples, which is what the other 10 are doing, right? They're hanging out, mourning the loss of their rabbi together. 
John has the women going to Peter first. And, but when the women go to Peter, when John writes his gospel, he notes that John's with Peter. In other words, we would indicate from the book of Mark, it would seem like Peter's alone, but John wanted to point out he wasn't alone. There might have been moments where he was alone, but he didn't lose me. And that is characteristic of John. He's the one that Jesus loved, right? And there's a little competition between Peter and John all the time. And Peter probably felt like he was all by himself, even though he had John coming along his side now and then. And when the Mary found him, she found him with Peter and John was there with him. A great just hints at what was going on between those disciples and what kind of people they were. In the narrative, we left Peter sobbing. So last time we saw him in Mark, he was sobbing. He was running from fear of association. And at this point, the fact that this messenger says, go tell his disciples and Peter, that idea of reaching out to Peter is all grace. It's all God. There's nothing Peter's done to earn that being called out by name. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Peter's the first. Right? He'd utterly failed Jesus. He'd utterly failed to stick with him. He said, I'm going to stay with you till the day I die. He's the worst backslider in human history, and Jesus calls him out. And the messenger of Jesus says, make sure you tell Peter that he's been called. Those that fail Jesus the most aren't rejected in Mark's gospel. Those that fail Jesus the most are actually invited to come home. And the church is built not by superstar human beings, but by people that were called back home after sin. After being with Jesus for three years, they still failed Jesus. So why do we today, 2,000 years later, we haven't been discipled by Jesus for three years, yet when we fall short of serving Jesus, we beat ourselves up over it and we have shame around it and we tend to distance ourselves from the flock because of that. But in this moment, there's no precedent for that in the scriptures. The opposite is true. There's an invitation to come back home. God doesn't look for perfect people. He looks for willing people. So he's going before you. This too is also true. Jesus goes before us everywhere he calls us to be. He's already waiting for us. He's already there. John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. When, we, when we're invited to come home to the saints and we're also looking towards heaven, the reason Jesus isn't incarnate with us right now is he's going ahead of us. And that's, that's the language that we see. In this case, he's going ahead of them into Galilee. Why the trip? They're in Jerusalem. Why is he making them go for a very long hike to get to him? And I, I think of what God expects of us sometimes. And I think that maybe this hike is to go towards Jesus and show indication or direction or leaning towards Jesus. But maybe this walk is also to get the heck out of Jerusalem. That's where the dead faith is. It's where the dead temple is. It's where the, the lying, cheating, manipulative, evil Roman leadership is and pharisaical and sodicitical leadership is. Get away from all that stuff. Get away from the world. Not just the city of Jerusalem, but... He's going before you and he's going to prepare a place for you. He's going to a better place. And I think that idea of like this redemptive process being one in which we not only walk toward Jesus, got the Christ in front of me, got the world behind me. I think we just sang that, didn't we? Get the world behind you. Turn your back on it. Don't turn your back on Jesus. That's a directional setting. Turn your face towards Jesus and pursue it and let the world catch up to you. 
So he's leaving a false religion. He's leaving the Roman mob. He's leaving the grave. Stop focusing on stuff that's empty and dead. And we've read in, we're, the entire Old Testament says that message. Stop following after false things and start following after those things that are true. And nothing has changed 2,000 years later. This is still our calling today. It's still what we're told to tell people about when it comes to the gospel. We're still telling people that. I look for those openings where people are naturally coming to the conclusion that this world is horrible. And the good news is, yeah, but there's another world. Accurate, truthful conclusion. This place is corrupt, it's nasty, it's mean, and sometimes they mess up your burger at the restaurant. That said, there's a better place and a better direction to face. And he said to you, I just like this, let's quick be reminded of what he said. So this messenger, he's going before you into Galilee. You will see him. You have seen the empty grave. But in making that step towards Jesus, in directing yourself towards Jesus, you will see him. And I think this is amazing. People say, well, I said a prayer of salvation and I didn't feel anything. Okay, that's not the promise. The promise isn't you're going to get a lightning bolt. And even these women looking at an empty grave don't get a lightning bolt. They get told to go on a hike. Set your life in a certain direction and the promise is you will see him. And you could say, oh, this is just said to the women, but this is consistent to our lives too. We're promised that if we pursue Jesus and walk in that direction, we will see him. We will meet him. We will encounter experiences where we recognize what Jesus is doing in our heart and realize it's not us doing that work. I call it the like, don't look back at the grave. Look back at what you were and recognize how far you've come and then give the glory to God because you didn't do that. And the reminder at the end there of as he said to you, I just love this. I'm going to remind you what he said. Go back to Mark chapter 10 if you want to flip back a couple pages. This is what he told them was going to happen. And I think this is part of how Mark, Mark's writing his gospel. Everything Jesus said happened. Everything Jesus set to did. He said, be quiet to the storm. The storm was quiet. And then in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, he said, behold, look, the same word that the messenger uses. Look at this. We're, and, and he's saying, look at something that's going to happen in the future. That's interesting. This is the point of prophecy. The point of prophecy is that when it is fulfilled, we can look back on it and remember, oh, God called that shot. So he said, behold, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. So he nailed that one, too. Don't be surprised. Don't be amazed. God said he was going to, he's going to do it. I think of the rapture as one of the big events that we've been promised, the snatching up of all the believers on the earth. When that happens, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. He said he was going to do it. It's not that amazing when God says he's going to do something and he does. We shouldn't be in wonder and awe of that. We should be grateful that we serve a God that actually keeps his promises. We can rely on that. To be reminded of God's word, which is why we read it every week, is to be assured that all is well, all is on track, no surprises. Tornado just ripped up Mississippi. It's all on track. Like maybe we could go help those people or serve or, or do something to re reduce the suffering due to these situations. But everything's happening according to God's plan. There are no surprises. There's nothing to be alarmed at other than the Lord God Almighty. He's where we place our alarm. He's where we place our, our, our awe. 
Verse 8 says, so they went out quickly, again with Mark, just boom, they move. And they fled from the tomb and they trembled and they were amazed. So shakingly excited. Oh, this just happened. They're revved up. This would be what we call an on-fire Christian. They went out quickly. The word is take, which is to go without delay immediately or even reactively. Like when somebody throws a baseball at your head and you dodge, that's how quick they left the grave. They're gone. It's a twitch and they're moving. Folks, when we realize how temporary the flesh is, how dead our own heart is, how broken we are, man, and then we get an option to run to Jesus. Don't even think about it. Let your spirit just reactively turn to Jesus and run away from sin. The weird thing is we get Christians today that say, well, I'd like to have a slightly better life. So they ask to follow the Lord. Lord, I want to follow you. And then they follow him with a slightly better direction to get away from things. But they still cling to some of their sins. They still cling to pieces in their old life they kind of liked. And in doing that, they're, they're absolutely not following the model. And that's, I think, why we say all-in gospel around here. You don't say, I'm going to follow Jesus and then cling to the grave. This is a giant mistake. I like, so the ladies are studying Isaiah. There's this great image in Isaiah chapter 2. Same thing. There is a physical reaction, a trembling and amazing, but then you also have people that decide to follow Jesus, but they do it part way. And you have this thing that, that the Lord isn't exalted when you do that. And, it, and it's a kind of a false worship that kind of looks foolish and even stupid. Christians that really don't live it. And it's an embarrassment. And so if this is convicting, okay, let your heart be softened a little bit on that. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 20. In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself. The reason they're casting them away is because they're trying to run to the caves of safety. And to get into those caves, they can't carry all their garbage with them. So in order to fit in, they got to like leave some stuff outside the door. And I think God likes that. You don't run to heaven with a nickel in your jeans because God doesn't have any slot machines, right? So you get that idea that you just, they were going to go to the moles and the bats and to the clefts of the rocks and the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth. Not so subtle messianic hint there. Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils. Don't follow after people that rely on the breath God gave them. Follow after the guy who beat death and throw your stuff away and run quickly and flee from the tomb and be trembled and amazed in what's happened and what God has done here. No second chance. You can see where Peter's getting ready for his altar call here, right? Don't sit on this stuff. Run from it. Get away from it. So, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The end of verse 8. What were they afraid of? They're certainly not afraid of the Roman soldiers. They're certainly not afraid of the people that killed and crucified Jesus because they didn't finish the job. They didn't keep him dead. There's a holy terror that we see in the Bible. They were given a command and they're going to do it. Go to the disciples. So they don't stop, they do not pass go, they do not collect $200, they go straight to the disciples, they run there as fast as they can. And I think this is interesting when you see new believers show up, we run to the church as fast as we can. And we get there. And they're not going out to talk to other people because they weren't told to go talk to other people. That's interesting in a chapter that's going to end with go tell every creature on earth. That sometimes the command is go hang out with the church. 
Sometimes the command is go and preach the gospel to all the every creature on the planet, which means God has different commands at different times for different people. And that's okay. Christians often, we think that he has a command for us that everybody else needs to do for us, right? But maybe they have commands they're following after too. So they say nothing. This is, by the way, not how you write your thesis in any way, shape, or form by providing evidence against your final claim. This is how you write an account of what actually happened. It's messy, but it's true. Women come to the grave, they're told to go, they run, they go tell the disciples. And they were afraid. So before moving on, there are roughly a thousand and well there are exactly a thousand and four manuscripts of mark from the ancient world what we think are original or um, earliest texts most of those texts are from 300 a.d and beyond because the old paper would turn to dust eventually and they're being preserved right now in airtight chambers and in order so that they don't turn to dust too of those thousand and four manuscripts there are six of them and they're called leaves because at this period in history, they went from scrolls to leaves, or what we would call a book. Only they didn't have the same binding methods and the same whatever method. It's like having one of those like 1930s dime novels. A lot of times the back cover has been tore off, just out of wear and tear, or the last few pages are ripped away. And that's what's happened. Of those six leaves that they have that are from 100 to 150 AD, we're talking first generation. Like, and we don't know that the hand that wrote one of those six wasn't actually Mark's hand. Like, this is within that time period that these were located, um, making them incredibly reliable, except for verse 9 through the rest of the chapter. Ten of those manuscripts of the um, earliest of them that they have, which would be about 10% of them, the back page was missing. And so you get people today, and this wasn't an issue really until the 400 ADs and beyond, nobody earlier than that thought this was an issue because they just assumed the back page got ripped off of that copy. And so verse 9 through the end, there are early versions that, ha that don't have that included. Uh, it's clearly another telling of the story, so it's clearly a chapter break. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Like even the context and the wording is different than the rest of the chapter. So there's people that look at that and go, ah, is this really part of Mark or did it get added? On the other side of it, we also have commentaries. So one of the first things people did with the, with the New Testament is they started writing comment on, commentaries on it. So we got Justin Martyr, we got Papias, we got Arrhenius, all have commentaries on the Gospel of Mark. And those commentaries date from the 1 to 200s, from those earliest six manuscripts. And in those commentaries, they actually have commentaries that go all the way through the end of this chapter. So the earliest versions of Mark, 90% of them had verses 9 through the end. We also have commentaries that include commentary on these verses 9 to the end. Why are people so re ready to say these aren't actually part of the original Mark when the earliest readers um, feel that Mark added this himself and that he probably added it after hearing Peter tell different versions of the end? Like he's refining his sermons and Mark adds this second ending. So the shift then is, is really not disputed until much later in history. And I don't see any reason to dispute it either. But what's in these verses is part of why people like to get rid of it, right? These are difficult verses for people to handle because I think Peter's preaching gets very 
appointed here. So now when they rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared to first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven demons. We've added that detail here, just like we added it before. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. And we get another detail. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Doesn't seem like it's making the argument. <laughs> and I think it fits, though, to add this point. They didn't believe Mary. And this is tough. Mary got to see an empty grave, guy in a white robe, pretty impressive. And she's just fiery with life. But when she goes to tell these people that are despondent and they're looking at the flesh, they don't believe her. So the story is also told by John in detail, so it's concurred in other Gospels, that the initial reaction of these disciples was one of non-belief. Not just doubting Thomas, the whole crew. So this is not how you start a religion. Every other religious text, there's this wellspring of everything that comes with it. But in the Christian Gospels, we get this, yeah, even the founding people didn't believe this up front. There's more of an alignment with the reader than an attempt to convince the reader. They did not believe. Spent, Marcus didn't, doesn't spend any time glamorizing these people because it's not about these people. Mark has often removed the person's name because it's not about the person. It's about God and what God's done and the glory that goes to God. This puts Mary in a category of somebody who believed when nobody else believed. And so to think about Mary Magdalene, who we don't get a lot on in the Gospels, this puts her in the illustrious category of Noah, Elijah, Jeremiah, Joseph, Hosea. She's one of these people that believed when no one else around her believed, and she stuck to her guns on it. So she's trying to tell them they don't believe her. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the city into the country, and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe him either. So Luke 24 says Cleopas is one of these two people, and the other person remains nameless. We don't even know who it is. So the first person to believe is Mary Magdalene and the people that were with her. The second people, we get these two guys that believe. They don't believe them either. They've now had two witnesses. They've had the group of women to come up and witness what they saw, and they've had these two guys, kind of nameless nobodies, come up and say what they saw. Even though Jesus said he would rise after three days, they don't believe he's telling the truth. And God's asking even his first 11 founding fathers to believe even though they don't see. Because for 2,000 years, he's going to ask every one of us Christians to believe on the word of another person who saw something. And the foundation of our church hasn't changed for 2,000 years. So they don't believe, they don't believe. What's it going to take for them to believe? Jesus is going to show up in their life too. Verse 14, Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. This is the case for everybody on earth that does not believe in Jesus Christ. They don't believe the people that have witnessed what he does in our life. So when we tell somebody about Jesus, they're actually held account for not believing that. And in verse 14, Jesus rebukes the 11 for that very problem. So his first interaction with them is, you guys didn't believe. Didn't, not only didn't believe what Jesus had said, but they didn't believe the people who had witnessed that he told the truth. Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel with every creature. It's like he doesn't even care. He rebukes them and then it's time to move on. 
There aren't even words of forgiveness. It's like it's gone. He rebukes the fact that they didn't believe. Now it's time to get to work. And Mark just sets that up so bluntly. Like, where's the recovery story? Where's the restitution story? Other gospels include those, right? That interaction with Jesus and Peter, go feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Not in Mark. It's like, bad, 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 go do your work, right? It's like discipline, right? Jesus knows that they love him. He, he knows that they chose to follow him. And the backsliding is simply, will you do the work or not? Will you do what God's called you to do or not? That rebuking there um, means that they had a chance to do it. When he showed them how to pray and watch in the Garden of Gethsemane, they had every opportunity to do it right. They can't blame the fact that they, they didn't know everything because Jesus told them everything. And we can't blame that fact. We can't say we didn't know it all because it's all in the scriptures. We have no excuses for our unbelief. So even the 11 disciples, point being, fall short. That's the way Mark tells it. They didn't believe those who had seen. It explains in part why Jesus didn't reveal himself right away. He wanted to see if they would just believe. Just believe without having, having to touch my hands like Thomas does. He gave them every chance to believe others based on the testimony of others, and that's been true for generations. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, including Timber the dog, I don't know why it says every creature. It doesn't say everybody, every person. They have those words in the Greek. Every creature. That baffles me. Should we be telling the good news to animals? Should we be telling the good news to spiritual beings? Should we just be proclaiming it so that anybody around us hears this? There's the one thing where they tell Jesus to shut his disciples up on the triumphant entry. And he says, if, if they didn't cry out, even the stones would cry out. Stones aren't even creatures. But apparently we see this idea of going to every creature. I think that is a encompassing statement, the way it's worded. So it's not literally go talk to animals because that would be a scapegoat for you to go and do that instead of actually talking to real humans. But it is this idea of you're supposed to tell everybody. There's nothing or no creature that you encounter in your life that shouldn't know the good news of what Christ has done in your life. The good news that Jesus is risen. They should know that even if they don't want to hear it. They're given an explicit instruction to go and to preach. Those are the two verbs. A lot of people like to go, but then they don't like to preach. Well, I'm going to go out and do this stuff, and I'm just going to let people watch my life. That's not, that might be going, but it's not preaching. Or there's people that like to preach, but they don't like to go. Right? I'm just going to preach to all the people in my church all the time and never preach to people outside my church. But it says to go and to preach. There was a new... Uh, trend in, in Judaism at this time, a very small group of people in the Jewish religion were starting to do what they called missionary work. They would try to convert people to Judaism, but it was a small trend. It wasn't popular. And so when Jesus tells them this as a primary command, he's kind of breaking the mold. Like in this sense, like this is not very Jewish, what he's asking them to do. He calls them to do this. So Mark three fourteen. then he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. This has been the, um, this is kind of the thesis of Mark. He trained a man. That, and part of the good news of Mark is he taught us how to do life. So back in chapter three, he actually called them so that they might do these things. And then he actually sent them in Mark chapter six. Mark chapter six, verse seven. He says, and he called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. They've actually exercised what he's, he's not commanding them to do something they don't know how to do. That's my point. He called them, 
He told them, this is what I'm going to train you to do. In chapter six, he actually trains them and sends them to go do it. So they have experience with it. And then he actually prayed for it. Matthew chapter nine, verse 38. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send the laborers out into his harvest. The whole point is to go out into the harvest and start collecting. So he taught them to pray for it. They are ashamed of Jesus when they should be willing to move out and proclaim Jesus. The word preach, what does he mean by preaching? Well, the good news is we can read the book of Peter and it's clarified. Here's what preaching is in 1 Peter. All flesh is grass and all glory of man and the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades away. This world is going to fade. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. This is how we presented the gospel. This world's fading away, and the word of the Lord endures forever. It never changes. Every time we tell somebody what God says, we're proclaiming the word of the Lord and how it endures forever, because it doesn't change. So we share the word. That's preaching. Preaching is to tell other people what God said. It's not to tell other people what to do or how to live. It's to tell people what God says about how to live and how to do life. God says this. So we proclaim it. So here's the protect, project, uh, progression of these verses. Jesus appears, he rebukes, and then he says to them, go and preach. The opposite or flip side of that is our side of that. He appears, we see. He rebukes, we repent. He says, go and preach, we obey. And the, the main formula of Christian life, Mark's wrapping up his book with this idea. We, uh, we see, we repent, we obey. Boom, boom, boom. And Mark's just, there's nothing in between those. There's a complete fidelity in the Christian life to run from the grave, go towards Jesus. In fact, the early Christians didn't call it Christianity. They called it the way. This is how to live. This is the path that we're supposed to be on. And then people say, oh, you're ludicrous. That's just insane. That's, you know, you're, you're a fanatic. No, I'm not a fanatic. I'm simply going a way that works. That's not fanatical. That's reasonable. This path has life in it. Even before I get to heaven, there's a joy between here and heaven that I can grab hold of that is something that assures my faith step by step. I take a step toward Jesus. I see how Jesus reacts. I preach the gospel. I see how the Holy Spirit moves. And all along the way, my faith grows with every single step. It gets better and better and better. And you're probably walking with the Lord right now. You're just tight. Everything's going. You feel the Spirit moving. I'm telling you, give it another 10 years. You'll look back and say how little you knew about the walk of faith 10 years ago. It is a journey. It's a way. It's a path that continues to get better beyond what we can imagine, which is stunning. The only thing you'll say is, man, I wish I started on that path earlier in life. I wish I didn't lose those years. Because where would I be now if I started way back here? And you have that question. This is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. Later, we see mostly, um, and I think this is kind of sad, we're going to see that when Paul meets with the disciples, where are they at? They're still in Jerusalem. These 11 people failed to pray in the garden. They failed to stay with Jesus at the cross. And sadly enough, we don't get this in the book of Mark, they fail to leave Jerusalem and go to the, into the, all the world. They don't do it. So how does the church possibly get built? God raises up other people that will do it. Same thing's true today. 
He's called everyone in this room to a ministry. Without exception, those of you that drag your feet on that ministry, he'll raise up somebody new. The ministry will get done, even if the rocks have to do it. Right? You look at places where they have outlawed Christianity, you got people dreaming chapters of the book of Matthew and then getting together going, I just dreamed chapter 3 of Matthew. And the other guy goes, I just dreamed chapter 4. And they start writing down the book of Matthew. And we get these accounts from Iran and Pakistan that God's going to get this work done with or without these 11 disciples. They've been honored in that they've been called by name and there's only blessing if they do it. Back in chapter 13 and 14, they were told to watch and pray. That's what equips them. Now they're told to go and preach. That's the, that's the action. Watch and pray, go and preach. It's a very simple gospel when we go through the book of Mark. He makes it really clear. Verse 16, if you take a look at that. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Notice that baptized is not on the condemned side because this isn't about baptism. It's about belief. You either believe or you don't believe. But if you do believe, you're going to want to show the world that you believe, thus we have baptism. So it's assumed by Mark that if you believe, you will want to be baptized. There isn't a case where you're not. But those who don't believe will be condemned. We've seen that in the book of Mark over and over and over again. Jesus rose. What's my order? What am I supposed to do? That's our reaction to Jesus. The focus here for Mark is on Jesus' commands. And for many, this just works. Mark doesn't give big explanations. He doesn't get into the sentiments of it like John does, the legalistic parts of it like Matthew does, or the history of it like Luke does. He just gets into the do it. It happened, go do what you're told to do. And so I think leaving that point blunt for us is exactly how Mark would want this to be read. This is why Peter, when he preached, thousands of people came to serve the king. Because he didn't leave room for anything else. You want to quibble with yourself? You're condemned. How long is, will a condemned person wait for the hangman to show up? I'll do it before I die. I'll do it on my deathbed. Oh, okay. If you think God's stupid, go ahead and try that method. Because I think God sees right through that nonsense. He called you. He expects you to obey. Wherever you're at when you hear that gospel, you're supposed to respond to it. Mark first explained how important this process was, how confessing your sin and sharing it, way back in chapter 1, verse 5, all baptized by him, John the Baptist, in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Baptism is to confess your sins, get them off your plate. God took them on the cross, but you got to acknowledge that they're there. So what's so great about all that? That's a public oath, a covenant, it's individual, and it's a vow. Baptism is like getting married to God. It's a vow and a covenant that you've washed the sins off of you. And when you come up out of that water, you're cleaned by Jesus for the mission and calling that he's given to you. And you're proclaiming it to everyone who's there. And he who does not believe, there's a whole other side to that equation. They're condemned. Here's the thing. We're all condemned. When it comes to good doctrine, every human on earth is condemned for their own sins. Yet those who believe and are baptized are saved. Saved from what? from their condemnation. And the same way Passover worked, if you believe on the Lord and what he said, you do something like take the lamb and put the blood over your doorpost. And God said, you don't even have to do that with Jesus. I'll put the blood on the doorpost of the world. I'll give my own son to do this. All you have to do is believe. It comes all that, how could it be that simple? 
because God's looking for changes of the heart. Nothing else does it. No act, no show, no work is going to be the same as just saying, Lord, I give you my heart. I'm sick of chasing after the things of this world. All they do is destroy me. All they do is wreck me. So I'm going to go after you with everything I've got, with everybody I know, with every creature on this earth. Verse 17, and these signs will follow those who believe. These are the verses people struggle with. I don't think we have to struggle too much. In my name, they will cast out demons. The disciples do that. They will speak with new tongues. The disciples do that. They will take up serpents. Paul did that. Remember the thing where he picked up the thing of sticks and the serpent bit him? And then, then he didn't die and everybody was amazed by that. And so they decided to listen to this God Paul was talking about. Um, and they will drink anything deadly, but by no means it will hurt them. <laughs> so, and they will lay on hands on the sick and they will recover. So you got a list of signs that when everybody's obeying and things are going right, things happen. Cool things happen. God will continue to reveal himself through these miracles. But then you get these wackos that say, well, then let's go to church and have a bunch of snakes up on the stage and we pull them out and just try to get them and bite us and see how long we last. Okay, that's stupid. And there's nowhere in the book of Acts where they pursue negative things in order to have God's glory. Paul says, like, should we, should we sin so grace should abound? Heavens no. Like, that's ridiculous. Paul didn't try to get bit by a snake, but as he's out sharing the gospel in the world, he got bit by a snake and the Lord just took the poison out somehow. That's amazing. And so I think we see examples of this in the church, not just in the book of Acts, but we've seen it for 2,000 years. When the gospel's moving forward, there are certain dangers. When you move into non-Christian places, you do have more demonic possession that you have to. You have pagan religions you got to deal with. So there's more demonic stuff. When you go out into new places, they do speak different languages. And God promises, I will help you learn that language. So you have Christians talking about how they learned a language in record time. And it's like God just gave them the tongue because God wants those people to hear the language. You also say they will take up serpents, they drink anything deadly. When you go traveling worldwide and they say, here, you can have this meal, you don't know what they're putting in that meal. You don't know if your stomach can handle it. You don't know what bugs and parasites are in that food. And God says, go forward and don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. And there are some missionaries that have had to deal with bugs in their system. It will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. You go out into those places of the world, there are people that are hurting. And they need prayer. And God says to pray for them in faith. So these ideas that these things can happen isn't that we can make them happen or we can conduct or create religions where they do. So you do have these people that I think the world looks at those wings of Christianity and they say, look at those nuts. And when they're going to make a Hollywood movie, guess which Christians they put in those movies? The nuts. The people doing ridiculous, irrational things say to the world how ridiculous and irrational Christ is. But make no mistake, Christ is not irrational and he's not ridiculous. He provides a way of life that is better than what the world has to offer. Simple. Basic. And in following that path, we need not fear the other things of this world. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So for Mark, these discussions, like, like he doesn't even tell us what the discussions are because he's already told us the gist. Go and preach. And so every other gospel, we get more detail on these parts. Mark's just like, go and preach. Go tell people what you're doing. So after he had spoken to them, is all we get, he was received into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. It's called the ascension. The disciples witness this. They see it. 
And the final point is made here. And I think this is important in Mark. He's not incarnate with us anymore. And in that, all we are left with is what he promised, which is the Holy Spirit. We will see the movement of the Holy Spirit, and that is our guide in how we walk through life. He's preparing a place for him, and we stay and prepare ourselves to be with him. That's the rational response to being saved. Thank you. What can I do in return? Nothing. It's free. Your salvation's free. I get that, but I love you, and I know I need to do nothing for my salvation, but I want to serve you. How can I do that? Sitting at the right hand of God, ek in the Greek. Uh, this is the point. The right hand is the point from which action proceeds. It is that which emits from. So the right hand is a phrase that gets translated here because in the ancient world, the right hand of the king, the king would stay on his throne. He didn't leave the throne because you needed to know where the king was. Unless there was a war to be fought, the king stayed in the throne room. But the right hand would go out into the kingdom and do things. So your average schmo on the street, if the king had an edict you weren't following, it wasn't the king that would come down and talk to you. It was the right hand of the king. And it was perceived to be the same thing. They spoke the words of the king in the room, even though they weren't the king. And so when you look at an incarnate Jesus being called the right hand of God, it is that Jesus can extend himself incarnate form to guide his people. And the Holy Spirit acts the same way. So him being seated at the right hand and then sending forth the Holy Spirit is part of where we get the idea of the Trinity. It's the same being. It's the ek, right? So this idea that Jesus arose, he was received into heaven, which means he's pure. After taking all the sins of the world and dying for them, there's no payment left to pay. The accounts are settled. Legally, emotionally, spiritually, everything's done. He goes up into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. He becomes God's agent with humanity to deal with the kingdom and to guide the kingdom. He becomes the right hand. So Mark has established that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's had authority over the seas, over earth, over sickness, over death, over demons. And now he has all authority in heaven at the very end of Mark. Luke indicates the Thomas thing and the doubts that Thomas has. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and honeycomb, Luke 24, 41. What Mark's summarizing and going past here is how common this whole situation was. Jesus is teaching them and telling them and he ascends up into the right hand. But in his ascended form, he wants a piece of broiled fish. This tells us something about heaven. In our heavenly resurrected bodies, we may still eat and enjoy our favorite foods. As Jesus asked, I think they're all wondering and whoa, and Jesus just says, hey, you guys got any food around here? I just love that about Luke, and I'm going to say that in every gospel, I think, because I just, I love the fact that Jesus is revealing another life to us, a way, a path. Luke 24, 44, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Part of what Jesus did when he was with the disciples that Mark just skipped over, he gave some of the best Bible studies in the history of the world. He went back through the Law of Moses, that's the Pentateuch, that's the first five books, and the prophets, the whole plethora of prophets, and the Psalms. Why would Jesus go through the prophets if everything's just been fulfilled? Because it's not all fulfilled. So he taught them in the prophecies. It was fulfilled then, it's fulfilled in me, it's going to be fulfilled in the coming of the days, in the end of days. 
So he went through it all with them and showed it to them. Of course they go out and start teaching the Word of God, but what are they teaching when they teach the Word of God? Their own experience, the Gospels, and the Old Testament. So they're teaching people these things when they go out and preach, and he shows it to them. Jesus doesn't skip a step here. Mark does. Why does Mark just skip past this? Because I think for Mark, it's not about the education piece. It's about the doing it piece. And, and I think for Peter, the fisherman, you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to do this. You go out and teach what you learn, and you tell people what you're doing. So here's the conclusion, verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs, amen. The word them isn't there in the original Greek. So it's the Lord working with and confirming the word through the accompanying of signs. That's maybe the most complex sentence Mark has put together in an entire gospel. Why? Because it's really important. He wants to get this right. He actually thinks about this. It's not easily spoken, but it, it's clarity that he wants. They went out. That's the point of the whole book. They did what they were told to do. They finally did it. They preached everywhere, not just with their close, close friends, but with strangers and both of them. So they preached everywhere, not just out and about, not just with their families, but everywhere, both of them. That's the point. Go out and share. They preached everywhere that they could. They had three years to learn with Jesus. He's resurrected. They have like a few more days with them while he's teaching them, re reminding them some things, and then they're good to go. This is the idea behind, I, I think that there's something beyond the study of the Bible and teaching, which is the other six days of the week. We come here to refresh, renew, get a fresh word in our heads. So we don't have to memorize it all. We just remember what we studied on Sunday. And then we have six days of the week to go out and preach everywhere. And we come back every week and share what's been going on. Here's what happened. Here's some things that were going on. Some weeks we got a lot to share. Some weeks we don't have much. But the Holy Spirit's moving in our lives. Um, this is good. The idea of reaching people outside is a key part of Mark and what he's talking about. The inside's good too. Inside the body's healthy too. Psalm 133.1 Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Just how sweet it is. What a great fellowship it is. Mark's saying, enjoy that great fellowship. Now go out and preach. And do your thing that you're supposed to be doing. We study, we proclaim, we witness, we testify, we preach it all. There's a time to share, tell people what you got. There's a time to abide in God. There's a time to go talk to the disciples. There's a time to go out and preach to the world. And we get all that in this chapter. The Lord working with then becomes really important. They went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with and confirming. So Lord, I'm going to go here and I'm going to go there. But boy, when there's nothing happening and the Spirit's not moving, okay, where else do you want me to go, Lord? The idea is we're so anxious to do what we're being called to do with the people around us that we err on the side of enthusiasm. So they go out and they preach everywhere, the Lord working with and confirming the word. So they're teaching the word. God confirms it in people's lives. I love when people say like, oh man, that, that teaching, that was so great. And I think for some pastors that goes to their heads. But I, I, I know for me that if that's what you heard in that sermon, I can promise you that is not what I prepared for you to hear. And it happens all the time. What you heard out of that sermon, how that spoke to you was completely unique to how God works through and confirms the word when it gets preached. It's amazing. 
Because this is mundane. I mean, it's fairly mundane. Heck, I'm not even standing up. I'm not shouting. I'm not pacing back and forth on a stage. I'm not giving you rousing words and stories. All I'm doing is going through the words systematically, verse by verse, making sure we, we recognize what's being said in each sentence. Isn't that amazing? Yet, after a few months, people change. You know, your head gets straight. The sin gets cleared out. You start moving forward. You start getting clarity on every step you're taking. And then you're looking back going like, how did that happen? Because it certainly wasn't that guy teaching it. And it certainly wasn't, well, maybe it's the food. But I'm going to tell you, it's probably not the food. The prayers, man, we pray in meekness. We pray in humility. We pray, sometimes we pray and it's even kind of rote and stuck in the groove. Yet prayer gets answered all the same. Not because of the power of our prayer, but because of the power of our God. All glory, all honor, all dominion, all authority to Jesus Christ our Lord. The word there, the Lord working with, is actually the word synergeo. It's where we get the word synergy or synergist. The idea that we work with God in such a way that it's barely recognizable where the line is. That who we are in Christ has been new and we didn't make it. But as we go forward and we combine our life and our story with what we know about God, we are co-laborers in Christ. And God works in synergy with what we're doing. Right? This is where I get concerned when somebody says, the Lord told me to dance up and down. Did he? Maybe you just want to have a heart for dancing up and down and God birthed that in you over 10 years. And then, like, and then I chastise myself because why am I being so technical about it? Who cares? Jump up and down. Do what you need to do. Right? There is this idea that the confirming of the word is that there, there must have been times when they were wrong. But if we have sensitive hearts to it, we can back off from that because if God's not confirming it, then maybe we're wrong on that. In other words, we don't have to know anything, everything when we start. You don't have to go through all of that process of convincing yourself you are prepared enough to do what God's called you to do. Just go do what God's called you to do. He'll either confirm it or he won't. And if he doesn't confirm it, then be humble enough to go in a different direction or try something else. That's the growth of God when it comes to a public ministry. The signs aren't there to impress. They're there to confirm. Do you see that? We don't go out and, and do miracle healings and push people down by their forehead and stuff. We don't put on a show to convince people. We let God convince people. And that's a distinct difference in different wings of the Christian church. That idea of confirmation of the word, I think it's sweet and private and intimate. And God just saying, see, I did that. Look at that. I love you. And you have those moments where you just feel that coming straight through the teaching of the word, the prayer, the fellowship, the worship time. This is what I have for you. Peace, joy, contentment, abiding. First, preach. Then signs are meant to follow with confirmation. First, get about the business of studying and teaching the word. Nor do we seek signs and wonders. We don't go after them, but we love it when they show up. We don't have scheduled time for signs and wonders in our fellowship. Because if God's going to do them, he doesn't need a scheduled time to do that. He will do it. This is our blessing. This is the great relationship of God. It is, it is nothing less than miraculous. And our, enjoy, our generation gets what was promised in the book of Mark. And, and it has for years and years and years, there's been a small remnant of people in every generation that say, I just want to serve my king. How do I do that, Lord? And God works through those people in, in waves.
In disbelief, there's condemnation, but in belief, there's obedience. In disbelief, we are not owning our mistakes. In belief, we own our mistakes. In disbelief, there's shame and disregard for Jesus Christ. In belief, there is glory and grace and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Which way is better? And Mark just puts it down to that. Pick a path. Pick a direction. So we still preach everywhere. Jesus still works with us. We still see confirmation of that everywhere we go. And then Mark ends the book with a word in the Greek that means, so be it. Amen. This is the case. So be it. Let it go forward. Amen is a word for the future. It's, we use it like a conclusion word. Jews used it at the beginning and end of their prayers. And I have a feeling with Mark, this isn't the end of the gospel. This is the beginning of everything that comes after this sermon. Because Peter gets done and he's like, okay, you guys, God wants your heart, so be it. Start a new life in Christ. Start it today. If you're backslidden, stop backsliding. Do what God's called you to do today. Go out into the world tomorrow. Jesus said it. Amen. So be it. Let it be done. And that's, as Christians, it's as simple as that. And, and Mark is a short gospel, but it's also the most direct and the most clear. There aren't high con convoluted and confusing philosophies here. God's called you. Do what he said. Amen? So be it. Lord, we love you. We love your gospel. We love your word. Help us to understand it. Lord, help our hard hearts to soften and be molded to what you say. Lord, may we have no excuses. May we have no complexity around what we're called to do. When people say, I, I know that I love the Lord, I just don't know what I'm called to. Lord, may they just go out and preach to the next person they meet and do what you've told them to do. So Lord, help us to have no hesitation in that. Help us to be bold in that. Um, help us to not be confused by what the world tells us to do or not do or say or not say. Help us to be super clear about what we're called to be all about. And may the world react to us the way it pleases. Lord, help us to be graceful when we preach, um, not to be rude, not to be puffed up, not to look for uh, attention. But Lord, may we be people that honestly look at the heart of the person across from us and love that person. Lord, may we start and act in the grace and truth that you showed to us that while we were sinners, you still came and called us by name. And Lord, may we just be the people in this world that live in a state of peace and in, 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 in contentment and abiding, Lord, that just passes all understanding and a joy that just abides. And when it's not abiding, we know how to rejoice and pick it back up. And Lord, may our hearts just be full. May you bless the food we're about to eat. Be with us in our fellowship. May your Holy Spirit be with us and confirming your word in our lives. you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.